Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Julia Cook about her essay, Past and Future on Rapa Nui, which appeared in issue 22 of The Common. Julia Cook is the author of Come Fly the World, the Jet Age story of the woman of Pan Am, and The Other Side of Paradise, Life in the New Cuba. Her essays and reporting have been published in A Public Space, Smithsonian, Tin House, Condé Nast Traveler, and Virginia Quarterly Review, where she is a contributing editor. Julia Cook, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Emily. Would you just set the scene for our conversation, tell everyone where you're living and calling from now? Yeah, I live in a small town in Vermont, right in the middle of the state-ish, um, and I have a little office um, right on the, the the main street in, in town near the library and the you know village butcher and all that, um, and it is probably like the size of like a king bed mattress around here. It's, it's pretty tiny, but um, it's life-changing as far as having a space outside the home to go to to work, to write. It's amazing. That's great. Yeah, that's also a perfect podcast studio size. <laughs> too, too big is bad. You're totally right. Yeah, I had not thought about that. <laughs> um, I would love to start off with a reading from your essay. Would you read just the first few paragraphs for us? Sure. The morning was clear and the colors vivid yellow brush, white ocean froth against cobalt sky. In front of me, dense volcanic gray stone appeared to consume the light. I stood in salty mist before an altar on the north coast of Rapa Nui, Easter Island. A single toppled moai lay in violent chunks on the ground. At 9 a.m., the sun still hovered tight at the horizon. Rapa Nui, which is part of Chile, 2,300 miles away, is kept closer to mainland time than by geographical rights it should be. The sun rises gray and sticky at 8.30 in the morning, and sets late, too. This is not the only disorienting thing about Rapa Nui, but rather the most objective example. One dark night, I'd watched a horse sleeping in the street outside my hotel, stark upright in a white cone of drizzle that extended from the streetlight. A car crept down the street and honked. The horse did not move. After a few minutes, the car drove up and onto the grass beside the horse, sweeping its tail aside, nearly bumping its rump. The horse flicked its tail back into place and still slept. All across the island, the stripped wood fence posts bordering pastures lacked wire to link them. Where one pasture ended and another began was unclear. Rainstorms assembled overhead and cracked the sky in a 60-second period and then disappeared just as quickly. And the moai, the enormous human-shaped megaliths, which are the real reason anyone goes to Rapa Nui, disoriented most of all, shockingly plentiful, lurid in their casual proximity, upright or smashed on the ground, resolutely resistant to simple interpretation. Thanks for reading that. Would you describe what the piece is about just for our listeners who may not have have read it yet? Yeah, the piece is about essentially a trip that I took to, to Rapa Nui, but more specifically um, about the, the mystery that is Rapa Nui and the Moai, the big megaliths that, that are all over the island. Um, and the fact that we humans are so obsessed with understanding what exactly happened there and that we really just keep getting it wrong. Um, <laughs> and yet we persist in really um, trying to get it right. Uh, that, that, that tension I found really interesting, um, both while I was there and after I came home. 
I wonder, I'm sure that most people know what we mean when we say sort of, you know, Easter Island statues, but could you generally describe like what the, what the Moai look like? I've, I've seen a small one in the British Museum and that is it. (laughs) They, so it's hard to describe what the, the feeling of being in front of them is like, like visually, they're just these enormous, um, almost column-like um, uh, statues of, of human heads um, or bodies or necks or you know, the, the, um, mm-hmm. the, the uh, sculptures. They are, some of them are upright on the island. Some of them have been pushed over and are kind of in chunks all over the ground. Um, but they're, they're just all over the place on the island, like everywhere. Um, it, it's really hard to describe how startling <laughs> um, just the, the number of them is. Mm-hmm. And are, would you say, like, are they as big as a car? Are they bigger as several cars? Or are they all different sizes? No, that's a good question. Yeah, they're, they're many different sizes, but they're all huge. They vary from, okay. like, <laughs> multiple elephants worth of huge to, like, wow. a car or two worth of huge. Um, so wow. they're, they're all just enormous. Um, and that's what's so startling about them, at least to me, the fact that there mm-hmm. are, like, five huge things on the top of a hill um, right. that were all put there. Uh, long before we, there were, there existed the technology to get things that big up a hill. Um, right. So that's why there there are so many scholars or just casual visitors like me who go to the place and get completely obsessed with it um, because it's just mm-hmm. so mysterious um, and majestic and really interesting. Yeah. Um, anyone who hasn't read the essay um, has to go check it out online or in print. Um, we have these beautiful photos by Julia's husband, uh, who's a photographer. His name is Patrick Proctor, and they're just they really bring out that 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 beauty. I'm sure they can't bring out the scale and the size, but but it's very beautiful. Yeah, it's so interesting. It, it for, for me, the sense of intimacy of it was what was really startling. Because on the one hand, you you see these huge things, and they are really impressive in the way that like any giant you know feat of human um, creation is really impressive. But at the same time, these are so specific. The the um, you know the, the the carved lines are really really incredible um, and feel very intimate to me. Mm-hmm. Was there a specific moment or idea that inspired you to start work on on this particular essay? Like, you know, were you there and you felt like I'm definitely going to have to write about this or did it come together sort of after the fact? It definitely came together after. Well, no, it came. So it started while I was there. This trip was actually um, my honeymoon with my husband. Uh, My husband has been obsessed with Easter Island forever. He really, really, it was like his bucket list place. He really wanted to mm-hmm. go there. Um, and I felt at the beginning as if I was really just indulging him. I was not expecting to love it. <laughs> um, and and ironically, as soon as we got there, I just, um, I really just couldn't stop um, thinking. And so I wound up just taking a lot of notes and writing a lot, you know, while we were having cocktails at sunset or, or wherever we were going, I just was kind of taking notes um, and when I came back, uh, I just started reading. And um, what, I, what I found was just a lot of contradictions, uh, which tends to be what I start with, um, I've realized now, however many years into my career, um, <laughs> that, that a sense of disjunction uh, between um, sources or, or a sense of um, lack of consensus or a disjunction between what I experience and what I read about after leaving a place um, tends to be what what has inspired most of my work. So, um, you know, I left and I read all of these stories about how, um, first of all, the the there's the 
the consensus, you know, reading of Easter Island that, um, that, you know, their, their hubris, uh, created their own demise, that they kind of, um, that these statues pushed them and their, their determination to, to erect these statues and carry them all over the, the island, um, you know, sent them into extinction and really killed them all. Um, and, you know, the more I read that kind of neat parable of self-destruction, um, to, to use the, the quote that actually was a New York Times headline, um, was really not um, accurate that that was a, a little bit too clean of a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, you know, that was what really propelled me into the story, um, both understanding how that reading was incorrect and why everyone was still insisting that it was correct. Mm-hmm. I wonder, is there anything you can tell us about the revision process, either the revision you did alone or, or perhaps revision with our editors, you know, in advance of publication? Yeah, your editors were really helpful for me um, as far as um, pointing out places of inconsistency in my own thinking. There were like a couple of little um, places. I, I tend to get really into research sometimes. And so I'll, I'll kind of go rhapsodic a little bit on um, certain subjects or, or uh, with certain ideas. And mm-hmm. sometimes the, the um, you know, the intellectual footing of that can be a little bit not, um, sometimes it can be a little soft. And so it's really helpful to me to have really smart editors who can um, point out, well, you said this, but this is not exactly what, where that leads to. So what's going wrong here? Um, so that was, that was really helpful. Yeah, that is really helpful. <laughs> I've just been doing some edits with another editor and it, yeah, it's exactly that. <laughs> it's funny because when you're that close to the material, it, it's really easy to get carried away, but it takes an outside yeah. eye to point it out. You know, I just, I understand my own train of thought very, very well and exactly. <laughs> it takes someone else to look at it to tell me that it's not quite as smooth as I think it is. Exactly. <laughs> So you mentioned these sort of mysteries surrounding the island. Um, and I think sort of, you know, the big flashy one is the mystery of like how they moved these 12 ton statues across the island. Um, and then there's also this sort of larger mystery you mentioned about um, not just what the civilization was like, but sort of why the civilization declined. Um, and, and you explore those mysteries themselves, the theories, which are, are so fascinating, but you also explore sort of this need that we have to, to fit this unique culture into something we can understand in terms of like a narrative, like a nice clean narrative or European type narrative. Can you just talk more about that? Yeah. So that's what I found so interesting. The, the fact that, um, that we are so insistent on trying to understand it, at least for me, when I was there, um, that the, the sense of being submerged in, in, um, something that couldn't really fully be understood was in incredibly appealing. It, it was, it was alluring and it was almost, it almost felt safe to me. Um, it was really nice to not be expected to understand it in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved, I loved it, um, like completely unreservedly. I just, I loved being there. Um, and so then to come back home and realize the extent to which so many other people didn't necessarily appreciate that about the place, um, <laughs> or didn't respect that or really needed to understand, um, and beyond understand, even when it, it, you know, the place resisted the understanding, um, they seemed to, to verge on imposing their own storyline on top of it. Um, so that, that was what I found really interesting. Um, if that helps. Yeah. Yeah, I really loved the, the. There's a moment in your essay where you talk about 
how the tourists who, who come to Rapa Nui over the decades come with different books. So like there's a certain generation of tourists that came with this book and then the, th- the popular theory changed. And now they come with this book that has a different idea of what happened. Um, I just thought that was so interesting how, how the sort of popular theories go in and out of fashion. Well, and, and it really made me think, it's interesting because I thought kind of differently about this um, as the pandemic began. It's crazy to think that we're, you know, now two years later. Um, mm-hmm. But but I started, I think I started working with you guys right after the pandemic began. Um, yeah. And it, it really, to me, heightened the sense that, you know, we look to the past to show us how to live in the present um, and what the future might be like. And that to me is, is what... Um, what the conclusion that I came to about why people are so insistent on on coming to um, East Island and trying to understand it so so rapaciously almost um, uh, to me it, it comes down to a sense of security. Um, you want to know how to live now and and how you know your kids might live in the future um, and and things like a global pandemic um, really do throw that into relief. Yeah, that's interesting that our curiosity about. Easter Island might not be sort of disinterested. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's definitely not not from my perspective. Interesting. I am always fascinated by places like Rapa Nui that have so many layers of history. And you sort of, you write about the oldest layer, which is the the Moai statues and the the altars that they're on. But also there's these later vestiges of colonialism. There's the remains of, of a leper colony run by Chile. And then, of course, the the current layer, which is set up for tourism, and there's bars and restaurants and that kind of thing. How did you go about capturing all these sort of coexisting layers of Rapa Nui in, in such a short piece? Like, I imagine experiencing it was strange enough, but also sort of distilling that in, in, into an essay. Um, you know, it, it was hard, to be honest. I, I, I mean, I knew that I wanted to um, place the reader on the island in the now, uh, mm-hmm. because I think that the experience of the now is so important in part because the experience of the now really does compress all of those layers of history. Um, and, and, you know, that's part of what's so disorienting and wonderful about being there that you're, you're there right now, uh, which is a complicated time in, in Rapa Nui's history because of tourism. Um, but you're also there, um, in the ancient past and in the more recent past. Um, so, so that complexity I thought really needed to be in the piece and, um, and, you know, it was just, it was mostly instinctive. Um, I thought, what do people need to know when they need to know it? Um, and so to me, it was more of a, 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 a process of understanding, um, you know, if, if we are there now, what's the first thing we're going to be curious about? It's definitely the Moai, for sure. Um, so okay. so that's, that was the, the first chunk to um, be explained and fall into place. Um, and then just moving forward from there. Mm-hmm. I noticed in the essay, I feel like um, it feels like there's horses running all over Rapa Nui. <laughs> um, you know, they sort of appear here and there in the essay and sort of in the background and stuff. And that it just gave it this like very otherworldly feeling as sort of, I think horses feel a bit historic to us and, and to just have them be, you know, there next to a car or something like that definitely feels like those coexisting layers. That's such an interesting note. Yes, absolutely. That's what it feels like for sure. Uh, there's a thread in this essay that I really enjoyed. You sort of already mentioned it, but I just wanted to bring it up again um, about how intimate it feels to be near the Moai and the altars. Like it's almost kind of transgressive just to, to be there so close to them. Would you talk more about that feeling? I'm kind of wondering like if you still feel that way or if it's a sensation that, that is sort of 
part of the moment? Did you know? It's it's that's such a hard question to think about because I'm not I'm not actually sure. Um, it, it's definitely still that way in my memory um, mm-hmm. when I think about it. There, part of the reason why I really want to go back someday. Um, it's so hard to get there. First of all, uh, that's a whole different mm-hmm. side note. There's only one flight a day, and they overbook wow. it regularly. So if anyone's thinking about going there, be sure to confirm your ticket morning of <laughs> before you show up. We al- literally wow. almost did not get on the plane. Um, <laughs> so uh, it's just it's and then you know it's however four or five hours from the Chilean um, airport to the island itself. It, it's really um, it wow. feels very remote. Um, mm-hmm. So. So, you know, part of why I want to go back is because um, I don't know what it would feel like now that I know so much more. Um, when mm-hmm. I went there, it was with so little um, knowledge or understanding of the place at all. Um, again, my husband knew far more than I did about it. It had fascinated him from a distance for a long time. But I was really just going there um, because it sounded cool. Um, and so... I, w- I really do wonder if it would feel that transgressive um, and intimate now that I know much more, or if um, if that was born of um, the degree to which I was really entering blind. Mm-hmm. There's a great moment in the essay uh, where you know you see tourists sort of walking on top of these historic altars and 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 you know get upset at them, and I, I felt like it really showcased this sort of feeling of the tourism on the island being sort of in conflict with like the the majesty of, of of the statues themselves. And I was wondering like do you have any mixed feelings about being a tourist there? Absolutely. Um yeah. I know as I saw on Twitter you said do you want to bring your kids there one day and I I love that, but I I'm, I'm just wondering like you know how do you feel about it? Yeah. No, I mean there's that constant tension between mm-hmm. you know we I think at this point any 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 at all conscious tourist is aware of the fact that, um, you know, from macro to micro, um, we tourists are, um, threatening pretty much everything all around the world. You know, we, we are contributing hugely to global warming and climate change with our airplanes. And, you know, we, we go to these places and tramp all around, even if we're not tramping, even if we're really respectfully keeping to the paths or, um, Mm -hmm. trying to be a, a conscious traveler, um, there is a cost to all of it, um, no matter what. So it, it's, it's, that's always present, certainly. Um, and I think I, I have not come to any good conclusion about where that leaves me or my kids. I, yeah. I know that I grew up, I grew up traveling a lot. My dad worked for an airline. Um, and so I grew up flying all over the place and, and, you know, um, really taking advantage of, of, um, his airline passes. So, um, that was really useful for me. It, it really ignited my curiosity and my sense of um, a larger world existing around me than just what I was seeing, um, which is, is, you know, really important, um, I think. And so I would like for my kids to have a sense of um, that world around them as well. Um, mm-hmm. Both the, you know, the majesty of it, the accessibility of it, the respect it demands. Um, mm-hmm. So but I'm not really sure how to get there in any kind of ethical way. Yeah. I, do you have a sense of how many Rapa Nui people there still are on the island? Yeah. Um, I think, oh, I think only like two or 5,000 at the numbers. Okay. I, I have it in the piece, I think, or 
Um, I'm not sure, but it, it is not a large number. And then the tourists okay, so, and, and foreigners okay. on the island far out, outnumber them. Okay. Do you have a sense of whether, uh, you know, I know there's some places where you, you worry about the effects of tourism, but there's also these positive effects, like it creates an economy for the local people. Do you have a sense that the local people benefit from it or not really? Um, you know, right now there's a huge amount of, um, of tension and upheaval on Rapa Nui about this. They're really trying to get um, some limitations put in place such that uh, people, um, such that they can benefit more. Uh, they really don't mm-hmm. benefit a huge amount um, right now. It, it was my impression after the research that I did. Um, mm-hmm. There was a huge uh, protest in front of um, the the fanciest hotel on the island um, because it was built on land that is contested. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's constantly going on. And for a tourist who is at all aware of all of these things, it's going to be very present um, in your mind if you visit, because you, you kind of can't not see these signs that are reminding you that that the um, you know the hotel room that that you're sleeping in is um, not not um, it doesn't belong to the hotelier. Right, right. It wasn't purchased formally. Exactly. Yeah. You've done a lot of travel writing and journalism, and I wonder, do you find any, like, is there a really big difference in that kind of writing compared to what you might publish in a literary magazine? Is the approach the same, or does it scratch, like, a totally different itch? You know, it, it's um, it's an interesting uh, question, in part because I don't, re- it's been so long since I've done, um, like, real journalism. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like it's a, a very different part of my life um, and, and my career, um, so... On the one hand, no, I've been really lucky. Um, I love working for VQR a lot because they tend to, um, my my work for them tends to really fulfill both, um, you know, the best of both worlds. I can do some really rigorous reporting um, that, that, um, you know, meets all the highest standards of journalism, um, but also lets me do what I like to do for a literary review, which is just think deeper um, and include more observations and really focus on the experience of the reader um, and not so much the information uh, portrayed. I think it's also really nice to be able to um, uh, indulge in more ambivalence. Um, I think in <laughs> literary writing, it's a little more accepted in like a literary review than in um, a more straight journals and page piece, which really wants to be, um, you know, either positive or, um, you know, critical or, you know, more of a single note, a little bit less ambivalent. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that, but you're definitely right about the, the ambivalence. We love that in literary yeah. <laughs> Um I'm also thinking just, you know, we've published a few pieces that sort of came to us almost as straight reporting and then sort of had edits to, to become more of a fit for the magazine. And I just think we're so often with, with personal essays asking writers to to go a little deeper and a little more personal, like a little more what your personal connection is to the subject or, or those complicated feelings that you might have that don't fit nicely into to regular reporting. So I think, you know, your piece is, is a, a good example of that sort of deeper level of deeper thinking. Totally. And I think there are also a lot of really interesting ways that the history itself, um, that being more historically aware, uh, reporting tends to want to be, you know, in the here and now. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think um, there are a lot of different ways to, to indulge that that more, um, you know, slightly more rounded or, or uh, more backgrounded um, kind of writing. And I think one of them is to make things a little more personal. One of them is to um, 
look at the history a lot more, uh, which is kind of what, what I've been doing recently, which has been really fun. That's great. You have a book that came out last year, Come Fly the World, which sounds so fascinating. And I just have to say the cover is beautiful. <laughs> it's a great, great cover. All right. Uh, would you, would you tell our listeners a little about the book? Yeah. Um, so that, that book that is, as I mentioned before, a book that was born of, um, just a real sense of, uh, disjunction in a way. Um, it is about the, the stewardesses on Pan Am Airlines, um, in the 1960s and 70s mostly. Um, and it, it basically, um, so it was born of a, uh, I went to an event at the TWA terminal because I really love architecture and I was really excited to see, um, the terminal itself. And when I was there, I wound up spending the whole time. This is like 2014, I think, um, maybe 2013 around there. Um, Mm -hmm. I went to this event, talked to these two women who had been stewardesses on the airline. And I'm using the term stewardess very consciously because they um, (laughs) asked me to, they were not, they told me flight attendants, they were stewardesses. (laughs) Um, And, and, you know, even that act of correcting me and, and, you know, sticking to that, claiming that terminology, I found really interesting because I thought um, Mm -hmm. it really reflected. Well, I didn't know when I met them what it reflected. Now I know that it really reflects their desire their their instinct that the job as it was performed in the 1960s was very different from the job as it was performed by people who were flight attendants. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, my whole book um, talks about why that is. And, and um, anyway, I met these women. They were fascinating. I thought they were like the most interesting women I'd ever met in my life. Um, they were incredibly <laughs> well-traveled, really authoritative, really smart and savvy. And to me, it was the way that they talked about geopolitics um, and events of world history with this level of really casual and authoritative intimacy um, that I found incredible. And I wanted to know everything about it. I wanted to know everything about them. And I really wanted to know the more I met them, um, the more women like them I met, uh, the more I wanted to know why the feminist movement um, that I know today had not given women like them more credit for, um, you know, putting women out into the world and making women's right. solo travel um, as acceptable as it is today. So, mm-hmm. you know, the book uh, focuses on the lives of three women who worked for Pan Am, um, well, five really, um, uh, over the course of 1966 to 1975, primarily. Um, and it looks at uh, the ways that Pan Am was really intertwined with um, American uh, geopolitics of the era um, and the way that these women in particular were um, really enacting um, public diplomacy long before that was really a term. Right. How did you, like, what was the process of writing or sourcing those stories from those women? Is Were they all women you met at that event or did you sort of connect with them there? So I went to a lot of, um, I crashed a lot of parties, um, is the, the really short answer. <laughs> um, I, I, I traveled a lot, um, to, to meet up with them. They are the most, um, incredible travelers. I literally met a 75 year old woman who said, Oh, darling, I never buy a return ticket from anywhere because you never know what's going to happen. Um, which I thought was just the most remarkable and incredible attitude to have ever. I sincerely hope that I, um, have like half of her, her stamina when I'm her age. Um, Mm -hmm. but, uh, but anyway, uh, it the sourcing, it was really, it was really hard and it took a long time. Um, part of it is that, uh, my, you know, my experience was in journalism. So, um, which depends on having a place to go to, um, or people to interview about and things that you can observe. Um, there was no there 
to go to for this book. Um, the there was 1967. So that, um, <laughs> that was a little bit tough. Um, and, you know, I had some experience in, in, in historical research and, um, writing from, from my graduate school, but, um, but it was really learning as I went. Um, so I went to a lot of their parties and I just, I just talked to everyone. I, I did many, many, many dozens of interviews, um, with lots of women who had tons of different experiences. And in the end I, I settled on, um, three primary women, um, who, whose experiences really formed the backbone of the book. Um, and they were, you know, one of them was one, two of them were two of the first women that I met, um, uh, in any of my research, but one of them, it, I had not met until almost, um, you know, much later in the game. Um, so it, 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 yeah, it took a long time. Wow. I don't usually ask podcast guests about their kids, <laughs> but I saw on your Twitter that you have young twins and, um, I'm, I'm also a twin and I, I really love it. My sister and I are best friends. So I'm just, I'm curious about your, your twins. How old are they now? They're a year old. They, they're 13 months. So they, they turned a year old on January 15th. Um, they wow. are awesome. They're really funny. <laughs> Um, it's really interesting. We have a, a two and a half year old also. Um, so they have an older brother. Um, and it's just, uh, they're, they're a, a boy and a girl. They are as different as you can possibly imagine two people being. Wow. It's really, really <laughs> funny. Um, I was going to ask you about, um, what, what that's like with your sister. Um, because these guys are like as different as you can imagine. It, it's yeah, we, my, crazy. My sister and I are identical. Um, I would still say we're quite different now because um, uh, when we went to college, she dyed her hair black and got tattoos. So we, we sort of look like a before and after photo now. That's hilarious. Like I'm sort of the unmodified. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we have very similar personalities and sort of react to things the same way and talk the same and laugh the same and really freak people out sometimes. <laughs> That's so funny. But, now, our, my, my, my little girl, Camille, um, is like – she's just the most ambitious person I've ever met in my life. Like she does, you know, she started walking like the day she turned one and she, um, this morning pulled all of her clothes out of a drawer because she realized that she could pull clothes out of drawers and open, open (laughs) drawers by herself and pull things out. She, she screeches with pleasure when she is let (laughs) free to just run around the house. Um, she like tries to climb absolutely everything. Um, and, and Noel, the little boy is just, He's super, he's a little cuddle bug. He's like, he does not complain. He is just really sweet and lovely. And, you know, he likes to dance. Um, So he's, he's, he just, he'll sit in his little chair and like boogie. And he likes to, to play drums and, um, but he's otherwise just, just really sweet. And do they ever let you write? (laughs) They do. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I am very lucky. Um, I have as much help as you can really reasonably expect to have. And and I also, my husband is very much a, um, you know, he's, he's a real nurturing, instinctive parent. So we, we have as close to 50, 50 as I think you can really get reasonably. That's great. That's great. Uh, you always seem to choose the most fascinating subjects. You know, I was looking through the list of things you've written about and it's just, it's also interesting. So I'm really curious to know what you're working on now and sort of what's next from you. Um, I have, I'm, well, okay. So I need to be a little bit cagey about this only sure. because um, I am I have a contract in process. And so I'm too superstitious to really come out and say exactly what I'm working on um, right. until it's all signed. But, um, but it is contracted, just not 
the signature has not been put on the, the contract yet. I see, I see. Um, so it's literally in transit right now. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's a book That's about a, a group of women um, journalists, actually, and writers um, in the 30s and 40s um, who really, I think, well, I'm, I'm, I know and I'm going to write, change the course <laughs> of journalism and, and way we, the way we think about writing and traveling as women. Oh, that sounds so great. Um, it makes me think of uh, Martha Gellhorn. I, I read, have you read her book, um, Travels, uh, yep. what is it called? Travels with Myself and Another? Well, and she is one of the women. So oh, okay. there we go. I'm sorry. Yeah. sorry if I just blew that exclusive. Oh, there's no exclusive. It's, it, I'm, oh, okay. I'm, just, I'm just really superstitious. Yeah. No, I definitely, I definitely understand that. Yeah. Um, Truly, if yeah, this podcast comes out, book. probably, if anyone's listening, you can, you'll see my Instagram or something and you'll be like, oh, that's what she was talking about. So this is not, okay. this is not going to be <laughs> that, that big of a secret Great. for long. Yeah. I really enjoyed her book and I just, uh, yeah, that sounds like a fascinating subject. I can't wait to read it. Oh, I'm so glad. Uh, Julie Cook, thanks so much for joining us. It's been really great to talk with you. I really learned so much and it was really fun. Thank you so much for having me, Emily. Listeners, you can read Julia's essay, Past and Future on Rapa Nui, and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.